Hello and welcome to uh, another edition of the PU Football Podcast. And you know we've got the two types: the one where I sit with somebody and we talk for ages, and then we just convert it into a, a forty-five minutes of a podcast, or where I get people that are interesting and open my eyes about things. And this is the version that we're going to do today. Uh, we've got uh, three Evertonians: Sarah Britson, Paul Diesk, and uh, Ryan Williams, who. Um, who, as I say, uh, are going to help me understand what's happening with Everton. And I'm not talking so much on the pitch. I have my own ideas of uh, what's happening in recent times on the pitch, and we will discuss that, of course. But I want to know what's happening beyond the pitch. What is the bigger picture? Um, and this, uh, this is a, um, a format or a forum in which those things can be discussed. Uh, we have promised to be honest and direct and, um, uh, you know, but always from a kind of loving uh, way, uh, we're just going to get to the, try to get to uh, to understand, or myself anyway, to understand what's happening at, at Everton. Um, so first of all, before uh, we go any further, I would like all of you to introduce yourself just briefly and tell me your best and worst moment as an Everton fan, who wants to start? <laughs> All right, I'll start. My best. So next month actually is the fiftieth anniversary of me, my first game at Goodison. You are Paul, uh, by the way. Remember yeah, the I'm Paul. Sorry, I, I should, yeah, I should, just uh, a, a, a tiny, a little myself. introduction. Yeah. So next month is my fiftieth uh, anniversary of my first game at Goodison. My the best moment ever as an Evertonian. It was 1984 FA Cup final against Watford. It was the first time I saw Everton win. So that was definitely my best moment. Um, my worst moment, I think I'm probably going to go for one of the uh, the Derby defeats at Anfield under Roberto Martinez. The Probably the 4-1, the, the one that John Woods, the director, walked out of the box with about 20 minutes ago. Mm-hmm. Any defeat to Liverpool is a bad moment, so I could choose probably one of about 20 in the last 20 years. Actually, I'm not sure I should have asked you for the worst, but I, I, wanted, to, I wanted to hear what is the worst for you. For instance, to see how recent the worst has been for you and, uh, and also as a proof of you know, what, what it means to be um, a football fan, not just an Everton fan, because... Uh, being a fan, uh, it's it's linked with the good and the bad. So, Ryan, you going to go first? Yeah, um, no problem. Um, so, I, I do the American Toffee podcast is kind of what I, I do to vocalize my frustrations and love for Everton. Uh, I do that with two other Americans. Um, we've had Paul on. I, I, I know Paul. We do talk every now and then for full disclosure. I also do work in football part-time for a company called The Scouted Hub and do recruitment services across the spectrum, as well as business strategy. I have articles out there too, so I'm probably not exactly your typical 
fan, which is fine. Uh, best moment. The first time I walked into Goodison um, would have been about 2008, I think. Uh, I was already a fan, but just walking in there is a longer experience that uh, is almost its own pod worthy. Um, I, it was all over. Like it just kind of totally captured me. It was kind of a strange feeling and been a crazy Everton fan ever since. Worst moment. I, I, I'd probably say the Southampton loss under Kuman because it was the first time I remember thinking just this feeling of hopelessness, you know, of thinking what has happened here. And I was already skeptical of the business they did that summer too. And I knew the numbers. I have a business background. Paul and I both do. And I was shaking my head thinking this could go really south. You know what I mean? So that that's, I think when you feel helpless, you know, where you're just almost dispassionate and you're watching something happen in front of you, it can be unnerving. That was probably the lowest, I think. Mm-hmm. Sarah? I think one of my highlights is probably only going to be one highlight, really, over the last few years. I'm a fourth-generation Evertonian. Um, I'll give you two highlights. Probably um, being in Anfield, can Chelsea score two absolute rockets of goals. And it was a 2-1 win over Liverpool in 95. And um, I was with my dad. Uh, another highlight, we lived not too far from Goodison Park when I was younger. And we lived right next door to the Toffee Lady at the time. And I have very vivid memories of being wrapped inside of the, um, the, the, the dress that she would wear. And I think that's probably a highlight for me. Um, there's probably been many. I think probably... Sitting with my dad over the last few seasons and realising that we will probably never amount to the, the the golden sort of highs that he had from about 1962. So I'd say a culmination of, of all of those things being the bad thing, really, just that realisation as an adult and looking at my dad, sort of that generation and, and realising that he, what he's done to me <laughs> <laughs> by giving me this. So, yeah. I'd probably say that. Uh, Ryan is um, is linked to football outside his uh, love of Everton. Sarah and, and Paul, is, is your life close to football as well when, when you're not at Goodison Park? Paul, would you like to go first? Not for me. It, it's just a massive hobby. So I, I have a, sort of like a business background, a commercial background. Um, and I'm really interested in how Everton is run as a football club. Um, and you know when we, you and I first started talking about, we first started talking about Rafa Benitez, um, and to me, he was a symptom of a cause. He wasn't, he wasn't necessarily the problem himself. And I, and, I, and I know that we'll talk about other things, really more difficult. And I think one of the issues that uh, I personally have and with the club is that uh, identity is like is like trust. You only have one shot at it, and if you lose the trust, then you lose it. You never get trust back if you lose trust. And I think identity is the same, especially an identity that's built up over nearly 130 years now. And I think that the people that run the club, the owner, the show, the um, the board, and any of the people who are in senior positions have to recognise the value of that. It's okay talking about being a community club and this, that, and the other, but they re- the the football, the, the fan-led football review that's going through fo- English football at the moment is all about this. It's all about 
recognizing the value of the club to the local community in terms of like smaller clubs but in terms of clubs that are, are global brands it's equally important to do that and at their peril the people who run the club ignore that because ultimately and i I've, i really believe this um you know we're the custodian we're the true custodian football fans are the true custodians of every single football club big or small and the owners are passing ships in the night they buy the club they may make good investments they may make poor investments they sell the club for more the same or less money than they bought it for and they move on the real custodians are the four of us the pe- people like us and, and there are millions of people around the world who are in exactly the same position but the responsibility of the owners and the responsibility of the directors is to recognize that and to cherish it and not only cherish it but to nurture it as well to improve it and make it more powerful than it is already there is already a lot you're touching on which is fascinating i mean custodians of a football club i like that concept at the same time all the clubs especially the the, the premier league clubs in particular but every club in in the in the big leagues want to bring uh, on board other communities, other countries, other sets of fans that don't know so much about where the clubs come from or what the community in which they settled is in. Um, I think it sounds by, uh, by, by what I've read, by what I heard, what, having spoken to some of you, um, we seem to be finding ourselves in an in a era of confusion of what you are as a club, um, what your role is as a fan, I imagine too, and, uh, and generally, wherever you look, there seems to be an identity crisis that it doesn't just affect Everton. Uh, tell me what Arsenal is about. Tell me what Manchester City is about or what Manchester United is about. Um, some sell better or worse their the supposed identity or, or the historic identity. But it seems to be around a lot of confusion. And I just wonder if the root of uh, some of the discontent Everton is, is just that with Paul you already started to touch on the, the lack of clarity on what you are is, is that confusion kind of an avenue Ryan? I think it's it's got to be right I mean it's very obvious the thing is there's business incentives to tap into that as well too I mean obviously there's a moralistic and, and you know overarching cultural responsibility to do it but let's ignore that be cold-hearted jerk business people for a second naturally if you're going to run a business properly or a club properly, you want to get people excited about your product. And in theory, you need to tap into the ethos of that because that's what makes the club unique. And if you can do this, so I think of the design of Bramley Moore Dock, I think is a really interesting thing because it's this lovely balance of kind of an ode to the past and the great history of Everton that every Evertonian should know. Um, even those who was not you know, born into the club necessarily. Um, balanced with this sort of modernity and design that was absolutely brilliant and gone through all sorts of consultation. I think it is a good symbolic representation of maybe an aspiration for the club that, that joined people together, that people got energized and excited about. So to me, if you can tap into that, and that starts at the very top, even if it's aspirational vision-wise, that's fine. That should trickle down into the football, though, too. Every supporter wants to see their team play, relate to it, and say, that's Everton or that's Espanyol. Same type of thing, right? That's what you want to see, and that's what you you know reminds you of. What, the problem is Everton is 
changed a lot over the years and had different styles of football. And I think it's tough to kind of channel that, but that's the trick. And it's not just a football style too. Like naturally, and this is, I mean, I've written a lot about this and talked to clubs about this, but there's a business aspiration for it too. I mean, you not only attract different people and whatnot, but you know, naturally there's advantages. Like I think of Red Bull having a very strong brand, but it wasn't organic. And it was literally directly from a company, but everything they do is oriented around that. And it could also hurt clubs too. Like when Barca would get away from the Barcelona kind of Renus Michels and Cruyff kind of identity that they established that turned them into a, a wonderful winning club, they seem to have not done as well and the people aren't as excited and they lose their way. And I think Everton have got to channel that. Any clubs that lose that, you're offending not only the supporters along what Paul's lines are, and, and that is something that's so important. Like, it's just religion, right? But I think you're also missing a trick in terms of being a successful club, and I think Everton in particular are, are doing a terrible job of it on many different levels. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that as well. Can I, yeah, can go I, on, Sarah. Can I intervene on that, just, yep. just to follow on from that? I think we're coming to a point now, especially throughout the Premier League, there's, over the last five years, that clubs maybe have been rooted, Highbury, for example, they've been rooted in that community for 120-something years, maybe. And we're moving away from those grounds, and it's almost like the identity of the, of the club, the culture of the club has gone. And I think there's a sort of panic, I think, myself, really, but a lot of Evertonians that once we lose that, that history that's wrapped inside of Goodison Park, those memories, um, what happens? Does, you know, do we do we, a West Ham? It's almost like everything is wrapped up inside that environment and, and once that is gone, especially because we're not obviously doing well and that success obviously might or might not might not come. So once we get rid of that, do our identities actually vanish? And I think that's what's really sort of the we're at a key stage at the moment as well, emotionally. Yeah, I was gonna ask you about that, Sarah, because you mentioned you that and um, and it sounds to me like like many of us uh, we'll like to go to a time where it was very clear um, who the authority was. It was clear that the parents were knew everything. Uh, where our football clubs had a clear, uh, a clear uh, identity, a clear uh, we knew what they were, we knew what why they were, we were going to see, uh, and that and that's gone, and uh, and that's gone because as has been touched on already, we're giving football to to the capital, to the money. It's, uh, you know, you mentioned Barcelona, Ryan, they still belong to the season ticket holders, which means that uh, there's not, a, there's not, the capital is not so clearly behind the decision making, which allows them, even though the ownership may, may have taken, especially the last one, a lot of wrong decisions. Yeah. Certainly there is a, there's a threat throughout the history that is easy to continue if the owners are the season ticket holders, which obviously that's not happening at, in the Premier League. Um, all right, we, we have touched, and I think we, we, we declare our confusion in this, uh, in this, in this uh, blurry times. But, of course, any club uh, given to the capital in search of money and in search of identity, uh, you can do things well, bad, or very bad. And, and it sounds like at Everton, uh, the leadership hasn't been very clear. In fact, uh, I would say, Paul, that that uh, for a long time now, Everton is not sure where he's going. Would you agree? Yeah, absolutely. And it, and it goes back well before um, the Mishiri era. But, you know, there's no point in really talking about what happened pre-Mishiri. 
the fact is that we uh, inherited a huge amount of money from a, a very beneficial owner. Uh, you know, he's the third largest contributor to English football in history. There's only two other people ahead of him in terms of the amount of money that he's put into the club. And there's just been a scandalous waste of uh, opportunity and resource. And that has to come down ultimately to the board and it has to come down to the executive. You know, if you're given the, if you're given the opportunity, if you, like anything in life, if you're given the opportunity, if you're given the resources to achieve something and then you fail to achieve it, well, you failed. And the big mystery about Fahd Mashiri is he surely he recognizes that elsewhere in his life because you know he's a self-made billionaire but he doesn't recognize it as everson and that's the big mystery that uh brains bigger than any of ours uh, have yet failed to um solve so do you do you also see that uh, that kind of um uh well confusion about what, where everton is going those that are taking decisions um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're, we're, I mean, if you think about it, we're, we're currently laying foundations of a new stadium in the city, and we've we've not been able to lay any foundations whatsoever within the football club since Mashiri arrived, really. And we had the perfect opportunity with him to press the reset button and and build from the ground up, create an infrastructure, and, and set us up for the next four or five generations. And instead, I think we've gone through management cycles and um, the groundwork that we had. There's no vision. Um, we've, we need to think really. The next hundred years that's what i want how are the club considering that right now you know what strategy is being put in place we've spent um massive contracts wage bills and we just keep appointing managers that seem to fit within that moment and there always seems to be a panic mode with everton and and i think really we need an owner who wants to get on board with a new everton revitalize us and sort of reinvigorate the club and break this cycle that we're currently in but you see yeah. the you see the um, uh, and I'll go to you, Ryan now. But you see the um, the paradox in a way. Mm. We are saying uh, that football has been taken from us, that the football that we knew or that our parents knew, or our grandparents knew, is taken from us. That we want to go back to that somehow, because it was easy to be part of that of that world, and yet. Um, especially with, with money and with new owners coming in who want to earn money, that's why they invested into the club, we asked them, asking them to look to the future, to the next 100 years, but not forgetting what, uh, what was done 100 years ago. It's not, a, it's not easy, yeah, isn't I mean, it? I mean, to be honest, money in football is nothing new. I mean, we had John Moores running Everton for, I don't know, what was he, what, how long was he there, Paul? Was it 20 years or something? Was it, it was quite a long time, wasn't it? Was it yeah, it's, it's uh, early 60s to um, late 70s. So, yeah. yeah, and this yeah, guy was a major investor in the city. I mean, our university is named after him. I mean, the Moors are a massive family, um, a massive institution. And I think, as, as a, for somebody of Mashiri's, like Paul said, business acumen, you don't expect that they will be Evertonian throughout the, the stewardship, but you at least expect that they will try and increase the value of their asset. And if not, why? Mm -hmm. Why Why is he not doing that? That's, that's what I think anyway. Sarah, can I, can I jump in yeah. there? Um, sure. I think it's really interesting that, and it's not often recognised that the, in, the there's an alignment of interests between the shareholders of a football club 
and the fans because a football club can only really be a successful investment for an owner if it's successful. So if it you know gains your you know qualification in European competitions, if it wins cups, if it wins the Premier League, if it wins the the you know Europa League, if it wins the Champions League, if it becomes FIFA World Champions, that's that's the progress that the club has to make in order for the investor to see a return on on his or her investment. Let, let me just quickly interrupt you there, Paul. You don't need to do that. You can be the uh, 16th team in the Premier League every year and earn money. So this is what the fans will like the clubs to be challenging for titles, challenging for European places, pushing yourself. But it's not necessarily um, something that you need to earn money. See, see well, that's that? true, but, but but I would use American sports as your good analogy on that one, or where you don't have relegation. There's not a, there's no fear that you're going to leave the league. Yet certain owners are still just hyper competitive. They'll throw as much money as they possibly can. Now most of those, you know, with the exception of baseball, have salary caps. So I mean, you're on in essence an equal competitive foot with your fellow owners. But they do it for other reasons. And the thing is, Mashiri is throwing money at the problem like crazy. So, you know, there's something kind of like a mixed message about that a little bit. Um, and I, I don't think, I mean, look, the top clubs, I mean, is anyone at Manchester United, despite maybe the not the greatest management over the last five years, concerned about relegation? So I don't know. I mean, that's, that's a good point, though, Guillaume. You know, some of them you've, you've invested, you've managed to get into the club. And you could sit back and just kind of count your cash if you want to. But I don't know if Everton's quite... In that situation, I'm kind of curious what Paul and Sarah think about can, that. Can I can I throw a word in that's not been used so far, mm -hmm. and it's winning. Surely, if you're a uh, a participant in one of the most competitive leagues in the world, it doesn't really matter who's competitive or not, whether you're in the Premier League or League One, League Two, whatever. Um, if you're a professional sports organisation, your sole objective from a footballing point of view, has to be winning. Otherwise, what are you doing? Why, why, you know, what, what are you existing for? From, from a purely football perspective? The problem and, is, um, it's the how. It's the how you try to yeah. win. And if you know sure. how to win, or if you know how to maximize the potential that you've got in your hands, or you've got a direction, you've got what we call in Spain, which defines all that, criteria. If you have criteria, you know exactly where you're going, you know which managers you're going to get, you know which profile of player you're going to get, you know what director of football you're going to get. Quite clearly, at, uh, at, at Everton, it's not the same, <laughs> it's not the same Roberto Martinez, that Carlo Ancelotti, that Ronald Koeman, and Rafa Benitez, not the same. Paul, you said no. that uh, Rafa is a, is a symptom of, of the problems at the, at the club. Uh, please expand on that. There's almost no, no scenario that you would ever think of before the events occurred where you would take an ex-Liverpool manager that has uh, a career that had certain high points, including obviously Liverpool winning the Champions League, but in recent years had not had declined somewhat in terms of his ability and his competitiveness in the environment in which he operates. Uh, becoming a manager of Everton Football Club. There's a thing that I think that is very relevant to 
five missionaries reign. Yep. Well, it's certainly inconsistent. Guillaume, I think you hit the nail on the head. So I, I think it's worth just taking a quick brief history of the Mashiri reign, because when he came in, I think people were excited and he spent a ton of money in two years. But I don't know if the wherewithal wasn't there. He wasn't thinking of the, the trickle-down effect of how that would affect things in the future. But he made a massive change two years in to bring in a new director of football, a clean house on the football side. And Marcel Brands came in from PSV and had a great track record there as well as uh, Alkmaar. And, and he listed, when he first got hired, all the things that I think people wanted to hear about the club. He talked about what sort of managerial appointment he wanted to make. If I don't know if you remember all this, but this is fascinating, right? He said, I want someone who's a modern manager, you know, modern tactics, that works with the director of football model and was really good with young folks. Because to your point initially, the criteria or the expectations are different. And, and the goals matter. Because if Everton's goal is to ever win the league again, that's a little different kind of a, approach from a recruitment standpoint from many standpoint as just maybe trying to sneak in Europa in the next couple of years. Those are, those are different approaches. And really what, what I struggle with is if you're a business person, then fine, let's translate football success to kind of what Paul's saying from business parameters is buying a player any different than managing a financial portfolio. In many ways, it's not, it's an investment in return. And so what's your problem? You think, you think a, a savvy business person could sit back and say, all right, our general market value as a proxy for, for the ability of a club is X. And the difference in the gulf between us and the top four clubs is 250 to $400 million in market value. Now, just mathematically, a business person could sit there and say, well, we've got to get there. So how do we do that? I mean, it lends itself to a certain approach. That's a little bit independent of identity because that's more the how that you're talking about. But the approach has got to be a certain way. And Everton have shown absolutely zero discipline around that approach. I mean, initially it seemed like we were taking those steps under Marcel Brain. So recruitment seemed to make sense. We were kind of recruiting for a relatively modern system. You know, Marco Silva was an odd choice, but ultimately when it turns out the director of football truly did not have the ability to take that identity of a club, which was probably never really passed down to him and try and forge that and put it into the football and be consistent. It just seems like you said, He's jumped from manager to manager because what does Marco Silva and Carlo Ancelotti have in common? Yeah, exactly. What does the recruitment under one have to do with the other? Would you ever buy Alon for $22.5 million, who I love as a player, but if you're Everton and you have aspirations for one goal, like you can't do that. There's no return on that investment. You have to recruit in a certain way that some of the smaller clubs have done very successfully. And that's, I think, why practical business people, at least like myself and, and Paul, look at and we're like, what are they doing? It just seems so obvious for us sometimes, and that's, I think, why it's very frustrating, uh, at least yeah. for me. I, th I think, is uh, to, to carry on from that, I think with Mashiri on the surface at the time, he he threw money into the club and maybe wanted the, the Hollywood sort of, you know, within two years, some sort of Hollywood move. But I think he never actually cleaned house, and he put Marcel Brands in place, um, which I was at the time quite excited about and love the idea of a director of football but again he was never really given a specific role typical with Everton we don't actually know the roles of people within the club and I think because we've never actually cleaned house this is now what we have as a result yeah um, planning structure these are words I heard from all the managers 
these are big words, uh, but I think they're, they're quite empty in content. And that's that we go back to the idea of whoever takes the decisions right at the top need to have a path of where he wants to go. It doesn't seem that to be to be the case. Uh, Paul, we lost you there for, for a second, I think. But um, you started to say, and I want to take uh, take um, issue with something you said, that Rafa Benito was a manager in decline. Uh, let's, let's say, yes, he is my friend. If I defend him, it's for two reasons. One, because I see his work close up and I've seen his work close up for a long time. And I can identify, I'm a UFAB coach myself, and I've got 20 odd years or 30 odd years of experience in football. I can identify a manager that works well or a coach that works well and one that doesn't. I can identify that very well. And uh, two, because I'm the kind of guy that in school, if somebody got bullied, you'll have me there, <laughs> even though I may be the worst uh, fighter or, the, uh, or not the quickest with words, but I will be there. Um, in any case, you, you talk about decline, and, and I'm telling you, he was uh, in China. Doesn't mean decline. Uh, yeah, there was a financial uh, reason behind it, but he was creating a whole culture of the club, and they wanted him to stay, but decided to come back. Before that, he did a really good job at Newcastle, and Newcastle fans will tell you that. Um, I'm going to just quickly, and to you, Paul, in, in particular, yeah. I'm going to explain to you, I think, how Rafa convinced um, the the owners of Mashiri to take him on board and then you have to come back to me for the reasons why you wouldn't take it and also how that this this pains his, his, his approach and the things he's saying how does that look in the bigger picture because I've got the impression that when Rafa uh, interviewed and he did really well interviewing because he interviews very well close up it's not the person that you know it's somebody that will tell you uh, if there are hundred situations in a club, whatever those are, he's lived them through where he, whatever he's been. So he's able to take a good decision better than a bad decision. This is this is to do not with the even the tactics or the identity of the club. That's not his role. It's what to do with the squad that he's got, and he tends to maximize the potential of the squads he's had. So he can tell you how he can use. Right back, he can use uh, uh, you know uh, system formation, blah blah blah. But he will also tell you, look, there are things that you need to do in a club. Yes, the planning, the structure. There is the medical department. There's the fissures that have to improve because the record is not great. There's this. So he gave a long list of things without being inside that he thought it will help the club to go forward. The biggest problem, I think, everybody found uh, is that Everton inside the club. Is perhaps not a winning, hasn't got a winning mentality. One of those that you were talking about before, as in one more, the standards have to be higher. Everybody's got to demand of everyone. And because he's done that in other places, that's what he proposed the club to do. So obviously you hear all this and I could give you much more detail, but you will, will you still say, yeah, but you were a Liverpool manager, so you've got no chance to help us? Or would you... Listen a little bit further what Rafa has to say on how to change your club. On, on a personal basis, uh, to me, it's not relevant whether he's a Liverpool, former Liverpool manager or not. I mean, that's just my personal opinion. But that's not the opinion necessarily of most Evertonians. Um, so, hence my comment, which I hope you heard earlier, in terms of Mishiri's ability to read the room, to read the city. You know, it's 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 a different. It's different. It was a very difficult one for 
most Evertonians to um, to swallow. The difficulty, I, I, I agree with you in one sense that he was put into an environment where it was very difficult to succeed. But I go back to the point that um, was he the right person at the time? If, if you take away the Liverpool Everton element, I, st I still struggle to believe that he was the right person at the time to come to the club, especially given how the club was run. Benitez is known for his desire to control most aspects of how a club is run. I, I don't think you'd deny that. No, that's true. Um, yeah, Everton is not a club that operates on that basis. It did actually under, under David Moyes many years ago, but with a uh, an errant shareholder like um, Fahad Mashiri, that was never going to be the case. Um, so it, it, it was just a strange selection on, on every, every count. Um, I, I believe that he'd sort of passed his peak I accept that you, you, you don't believe that. Um, but I just don't think he was a fit, both for, in terms of, you know, uh, what had happened in the past in terms of being a Liverpool supporter, but also particularly in terms of how Fahad Mishiri runs the club. It was always going to be a clash between two, um, let's put it in this terms, two alpha males who hmm. had different, entirely different views as to how a football club should be run. I'm kind of curious what Sarah thinks about the Liverpool connection and did that really make that much of a difference? That's one I've struggled with. I'm just from afar. I, I don't have yeah. a great feel for that. I personally don't care. I, I, I will care if supporters care, especially local supporters, but I'm not sure if it mattered. I didn't think he was a good choice for reasons that had nothing to do with that, but I, I'm curious what Sarah thinks. I mean, really, at the time, I found it absolutely astounding that we, we would even, even consider it. Um, I also fall into the onto the side of Paul where I, I also want the very best for Everton Football Club, but at the same time I did not think he he fitted into that criteria either. And I think it, at the time, to me, coming out of sort of the Ancelotti area, I'd sort of fallen in love with Everton at that time. He made me fall back in love with the club, you know. I'm going around the city, and he was spotted in locations, and there was that sort of it was a, a, a territorial thing, whatever you call it. But then going from that to Benitez, I just felt it lacked vision. And um, I, I mean, to me personally, from a, from a tactical perspective, I don't know if I, if you feel the same way, Gillen, but I, I felt that he set us up absolutely wrong most weeks. Um, the football was terrible. Uh, granted that we also had... Um, injury after injury but the last few games I think we definitely were close to a full squad on um, that um, it's 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 obviously um, it, it, it's a judgment that's quite generalized that the football of Everton was was very poor especially at the end to create good football uh, you have to have a series of things that Everton don't have at the moment um, competition for places the standards to be very high where everybody trains to the best where recuperation of uh, injuries is, is fast enough, where um, there is, there is um, as aspiration towards something, there is an atmosphere in which everybody wants to be part of, and I think that atmosphere is built by everyone, 
not just by the club, but by everyone, I think. Um, and and all that wasn't there. I'm not I'm not justifying Rafa. I'm saying obviously quite clearly at the end the football was very very poor. I do think honestly that he hasn't been given a proper chance because to change anything of the stature of Everton, of an institution like Everton, with the depth of um, of a club like Everton, you need more than four months. After four months, everybody had given up. And right now, if you look at the, uh, at the whole picture a little bit close up, you not only got everybody out of the uh, infirmary, apart from Tom Davies, um, you've got two new full-backs coming in, and that's four wingers or four people that can play wide, which you didn't have at the beginning of the season. Um, and the possibility of, with everybody in, start building. Six months is not enough. I, 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 think, I agree. I, I yeah, do, yeah. I, I do. I do agree with that, and I also think that really at this stage, whoever Everton brings in, it probably doesn't make a difference at this very stage. Which sounds awful. I just think the club is so lost, and it's so desperate to find a philosophy and 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 an identity. I just think that Rafa was probably the icing on a very bad cake, <laughs> and now it's yet another payment to a manager. And I, I don't know where we go from there. But I, I agree. Think I think there are multiple levels, though. I mean, it's one thing to say that he's in a tough spot because, I mean, clearly, if you want someone that's going to be controlling in all aspects of the club, don't bring in a manager like Rafael Benitez when you have a director of football. I mean, granted, we know Brands wasn't really doing much at the end, at least to play that actual role. Uh, but he signed a new deal several months before because he probably figured he could work under Carlo because Carlo worked under sporting directors, okay. But Carlo clearly influenced the recruitment. As it turns out, everyone was influencing the recruitment. So, I, And I also don't fault Rafael Benitez for playing what some consider a negative style of football. I, I don't care, and I don't think that's fair. I maybe don't love it, but that's that's him. You, I mean, you brought him in. What are you going to expect him to play free-flowing? You know, like, Come on, man. He's not going to play positional play. Pep Guardiola-style football. That's not him. And there's nothing that says it can't work. However, however, I think we have to be honest about evaluating what is his responsibility and what is not. And I think it'd be very hard to make the argument that, and he probably didn't do himself any favor up front by talking about it in glorious terms as player audits, about how he utilized the players and how he set up the team. And I think there are a lot of reasons why maybe that happened. And, and clearly the guy is not a dumb manager. I mean, we know that. No one would make that assessment. But it was very hard to watch the team every week and not point out multiple different ways where that player is not used to be using it, being used in that way. That setup doesn't make a lot of sense. And it was very difficult to see you know, the other side be more organized than us virtually every match, to some extent more, to some extent otherwise. And I don't know if it was him just being stubborn about forcing. At first it was the 4-2-3-1 and then the 4-4-1-1 and certain things about him that I'm sure he believed and had convictions would work. But I, I just... I mean, at one point, you got to hold him accountable for performance. And I just felt like he, the team is not as bad as some people are describing. And I feel like you've got to hold him accountable for that. And we were not getting better, even as we were getting more healthy. So, I, and I could go through many, many examples. Guillaume, you've heard me probably say them several times. Um, but so, yes, he was not set up to be in a great position. It was a tough spot for him to be in. And much of that is the leadership of football club, not necessarily him. Um but on the other hand, too, I don't think he was doing a very good job with, with what he was given, and I would expect someone else to come in and do a better job, frankly. The, the last thing I want to say about, about Rafa is that uh, quite clearly he was made the, the villain of the whole piece, and it was easy for that to happen. I think if you listen to what we've spoken for the last 45 minutes, 
everybody will realize, and everybody that really knows Everton much better than me will realize that you have to look at at what's happened before, and it wasn't just the, the sole responsible for what's happening. But now that we've uh, we've moved on from Rafa, Paul, um, knowing a little bit what's inside, uh, uh, and not just from Rafa, but you know it too, um, bringing what it could be an exciting appointment, like a young manager with a lot of ideas, doesn't seem to me either the way forward for Everton. Because there are so many decisions that have to be taken inside the camp. You have to unite everyone. I think there was there was enemies inside the camp to the last managers. All that has to be clear, as Sarah described. But who do you give Everton to? What, as, as fans, but as fans with knowledge, what do you think the next step should be for the club, Paul? Well, well, let's real quick though. Yeah. I mean, we're talking about there's a manager appointment right now, you know, and then there's uh, restructuring the football club in a modern way that could be successful mm. downstream. I mean, clearly there's no sporting director now. There's no head of analysis. There's no head of scouting. Uh, the entire medical team is left. I mean, it's completely an, an empty slate. The only thing that hasn't changed for the most part, and it's changed somewhat, is the board. Um, I'm totally queuing up Paul here, by the way. <laughs> um, but yes, I mean, the structure has so, but I'm just saying, Guillaume, there's, there are two different levels here. There, there's appointing a manager that can be somewhat successful right now to keep Everton safe. And then there's a greater decision that hopefully the owner somehow will magically come to the realization of how a, a club should be set up, learn identity vision and implement it into a, an intelligent football structure you know those are two different levels of decisions yeah, but the, that's, the that's next quick decision is the manager and the one manager. the one that the fans look up to and that will be if the personality is right it will bring love back for the club so it's so important the next choice of a manager absolutely right i'd have brought in as director of football first a couple of weeks absolutely. ago absolutely I'd, I'd, I'd have been looking first and foremost i wouldn't have rushed i wouldn't be rushing into any managerial position right now. This Amen. is such a critical moment in Everton Football Club's history and we will be going backwards if we pick another manager that we get rid of in six months. And if we survive, by the way, because we're now in a relegation battle, I will let Paul take the reins here, but director of football <laughs> for me all the way and then appoint somebody who who has the capacity, the vision and the ability to take Everton Football Club on his shoulders or his or her shoulders, of course, I should say. But mm. but I do believe that this is a massive burden to take on and they have to be extremely strong-willed. I, I agree with much of that, sir. Unfortunately, I think that the decision will be based on short-term need rather than the long-term um, benefit to the club. And the short-term need, given... Uh, our financial situation, the fact that we're still, you know, we're currently loss making, and we've been loss making for five of the last six years, um, and we've got a huge capex requirement in terms of the stadium going forward. It's absolutely critical, obviously, from a shareholder perspective, let alone from a fan perspective, um, to stay in the Premier League, and it's going to be driven by that, in the absence of any long-term strategic thinking, and you know, I'm part of uh, something that's called the 27 Years Campaign. Um, and that's about look, you know, asking Fahad Mishiri to make the right decisions that are in the long-term interests of the club, not just the short-term. It might be because we're in such a difficult position now in terms of our league position that we need to look short-term. But if we need to look short-term, it has to be short-term. And then 
when we get to the end of the season and if we um, re- stay in the Premier League, we have to throw all of that away. And we have to sort of start from, from, from almost from the beginning, six years in, ridiculous, and £500 million pound in, ridiculous as, as it sounds. And we have to build a club from, you know, from, from the bottom upwards. And that means that we need to bring in um, strong leadership. We need to bring in a chairman who can control his shareholder. The best businesses obviously hope to have great shareholders who do everything that they should do. Everton don't have that. They have a guy who's prepared to put lots of money into the club, but he acts in a very irresponsible way because he he does things that he's not qualified to do. So if he makes a recruitment decision, you've got to compare that recruitment decision to the recruitment decisions that like Manchester City or Liverpool or Chelsea would make and the quality of the people who are made in football terms, the quality of the people who are making that decision in those clubs because at the end of the day, this is a competition and you only compete by um, making good decisions. And, and it's this absence of making good decisions, this absence of having a long-term strategy of uh, being willing to bring people in from the outside who know how to run a football club, who know how to run a business. It doesn't really matter. If we don't, if we, if we don't mend that bit, it really doesn't matter who we bring in as a manager because we're only six or nine months away from the next disaster. And and perhaps that was the problem that Rafa had. And maybe uh, Rafa Benitez never re- never realised or recognised that that was the scenario he was going into. Because, you know, we have a chairman who's a great salesman, self, self-confessed great salesman. And I'm sure he would have given, you know, a fantastic eulogy, well not eulogy, but a fantastic speech about uh, the prospects of managing Everton Football Club under his chairmanship and under the shareholding of, of, of Fahad Mishiri. And perhaps Rafa was bought into that maybe too willingly. But that's the past. The future is Mishiri has to change the way that he runs the club and has to allow professionals to run the club on his behalf. And he has to act like a shareholder not like a director of football, not like a chairman who might want to choose a manager. Now, I think that's part of the problem right now in the short term, to just interrupt quickly, Guillaume, and I think the reason why people feel a sense of hopelessness, frankly. Because think about it, who would make the decision right now to bring the manager? Like, look, it, look, you said you've got your B license. Congratulations, by the way, because that's a bit of a pain in the butt to get. Uh, <laughs> but think about that for a second. I mean, who on the board, they appointed Graham Sharp, who's a lovely guy and was a heck of a footballer. But I mean, is he involved in the modern game in some capacity? It sounds like Tim Cahill may be doing some advising. He's had some background in Aspire Academy and, and you know, was on the board of UPIN and things like that. But who's going to make the manager? I've got the impression, I mean, uh, and this is an important uh, thing to add, I imagine. Um, I've got the impression that, uh, that Moshiri listens to a lot of people, and you perhaps yes. have mentioned some of them. I think agents are important in this business as well. And they also salesmen, some of them really, really good salesmen that are very close to him, which um, also will suggest names that the one like the ones have been thrown and actually interviewed. Um, so I'm not sure how deep the research is from before the decision gets taken. But um, while all this is happening, and perhaps when this comes out, which will be soon, um, the decision has been has been already announced. But in any case, uh, I wanted to finish with something. What is the role in all this? We heard 
what the situation is, how you feel about the club and um, and you know how, how you hope it to improve. But what's the role of the fans in all this? Um, how close or how far you have to be from the decision? How close or how how, um, how deeply you have to make your feelings uh, felt during a game or before a game? What really is the role of the fans here uh, at this point in time, Sarah? I think the role of the fans is to um, keep the keep keep each other sort of um, sane as best we can as, as Evertonians. I'm not sure how how easy that is. I feel like the the fan base is going through a really tough time. It's very fractured, um, but I think unity is what I think we're all trying. I mean, we all want the best for our club. Um, and I think more and more fans now are realising that we are in a really bad situation. And I think a lot of that is maybe there's fear that's coming from the attacks and there's there's personal attacks. And I think really what we've got to do is just focus on um, the stability of the club, um, the future, think about all of the positives that we can now inject into a new Everton and try and keep focus as best we can, like Paul mentioned with the 27 campaign. Um, there have been protests. Um, it's for the best of the club, and a lot of Evertonians um, feel um, disenfranchised, and they feel that the club is being taken from them, and um, they just want to feel connected again to it. And I think Mr Mashiri really has to make some massive decisions over the coming days, and he has to feel that... Um, his next move can affect this club's history. So I think it's really important that the fans are are together on that. And I imagine, Paul, that uh, you like the fans to be heard by, by Moshiri, by, by, by the board, by the decision makers. Um, look at it from the other point of view. Uh, if, if I tell you that there are players that, that don't really like playing in Goodison Park because of the, the stick that they're getting from the fans, um, which that of course gets um, gets gets to the top. They all know that there are problems uh, of performing at the best level because they don't feel they don't feel uh, I don't know whatever the players need to feel loved or so there is there is all that also that the fans are adding to the equation um, and yet as as is normal you would like the fans to be closer to the decision making. Uh, in such an emotional business, it's it's difficult to put all that together, no? Yeah, I, I'm going to turn your argument on, on on its head if you don't mind me doing so. Please do. Um, <laughs> players are hugely privileged, and I'm not, I'm not talking about the amount of money that they earn. That's just a function of the market. They're hu- hugely privileged to represent any football club. You know, to put the to put a strip on with a badge and with a, a brand and an identity that, in the case of Everton, is 130 years old, to walk on a pitch that had Dixie Dean on it, to walk on a pitch that had Pele on it in 1966, they are massively privileged, and they do this, like, you know, 40 times a year. Paul, that doesn't, give you, that doesn't give you mental strength. No, 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 no just can I, can I, can I, can Sorry. I answer, answer, answer your question? So they're in an enormously privileged position. They've worked very hard to get to this level of the professional game. I recognise that. And, you know, the, the, the probability of success when you start as an eight-year-old going through an academy to becoming um, a Wayne Rooney or, or, or whomever 
is, is very, very small. But nevertheless, they've got there. So they're privileged. With privilege, I believe, comes responsibility. And although most football fans, most Evertonians wouldn't say it like this, there's an underlying expectation that when you represent Everton Football Club, you achieve standards which are consistent with um, the values of the club. And the frustration from the fans comes from all of the poor decisions that are made in the boardroom, which means that uh, poor decisions are made on the training ground, which means that poor decisions are made in terms of recruitment of managers, coaches, etc., which means that poor decisions are made in terms of the players. But nevertheless, those players at any one given time, they represent the football club and they are all that we have that represents that club. So it, it must be understandable that that frustration comes out from time to time. This is a football club with a fan base that only really wants to support the players that are on the pitch. And if it becomes a difficult environment in which to play, that's a reflection of all that's going on in the club. And it, it, it is because it, it is the only means that the fans have to express their concerns. You just nailed it. It's the lack of transparency. I think that's the biggest issue. People don't even understand the context of why we bought half these players. And that's that's very low level. That's more micro level thinking of what Paul's saying, but it's all a trickle down effect. I mean, why is Goodison in Up Wars can't stand Solomon Rondon randomly? Do they truly have an appreciation that he was a 31 year old free from Russia, you know, that had played for Rafa that and I think every manager deserves someone that can advocate for them and fit his tactic. Do, do people have an appreciation of how difficult a job he was thrust into due to injuries, things like that? So if there's no context or there's not a dialogue with fans and they can understand the decision making, it's hard. And I think a lot of fans will tolerate maybe a lack of a standard, at least now, if you felt like there was a direction going forward that you could get excited about. I think people would have a little more leeway right now to Paul's point People are frustrated. I mean, maybe less mature folks than us, very mature adults here, uh, may even lash out because they feel apprehension, they feel fear, they feel frustration on the lack of direction. And what's scary, at least for some of us that maybe know a little bit about how football works, I look at how we're making this next managerial appointment and naturally, almost any name you throw up there, people are going to flip out. You mentioned agents. I mean, would people not flip it? Now people are actually getting more savvy about how football works. I think that is a good event. But some people need to also explain some of the finer nuances. Like, you can't just jump and say, Victor Perea should not be our manager because he's Kia's idea, because Kia's guided his career forever. You know what I mean? Like, I, I get why people would be frustrated about that, but it triggers people because they don't have context. There's not dialogue. They don't understand maybe some of the decision-making. They don't understand the role agents play. They don't see anyone that is part of the decision-making process that says, I'll bet you that guy's going to make the right decision because they're qualified. You're chairman of a club. Think about it. Would you entrust the day-to-day -day management of that club to someone that doesn't know football as well as you, if not better, that you can look at and say, I know that gal or guy is going to make a proper decision on a day-to-day -day basis. My God, look at what we did this January window. No Evertonian should be happy about that. If you really pulled back the, the layer on that one, look at the prices we paid for these guys. And some of them, are the two fullbacks are decent players. I mean, you just I start to look yeah. at this. It, it just, it, 
it's frustrating. There's a frustration, exactly. I think there is a frustration too, isn't there, in the fact that we're seeing clubs like Leicester and Aston Villa looking to be set up so much better than we are. Um, right, that, Brentford. That, yeah, exactly. You know, clubs that absolutely no disrespect, I mean, to any of those clubs that I've obviously brought up, but there is an element of bewilderment that we have spent, you know, 600 and something million, I think the is actually pumped into the club and we've actually got nothing to show for it. Well, Paul, Sarah, Ryan, uh, you're giving me a lot of um, food for thought and, uh, and I've learned a lot as well. Uh, I understand much better the frustration. Um, I was trying uh, to bring a little bit of light and, uh, and greenness <laughs> to what's, what's happening at Everton. And Please. I think we, Wrong fan base. <laughs> I think we, well, at the moment we failed a little bit. But one thing you have to say, um, you, you passion is what drives the club and, and many levels and your passion is really deep and your understanding of, uh, of, of the circumstances that's taking Everton here is also that you've th taken a lot of time to think of. That also is very positive. If everybody does that, then uh, the reactions, and sometimes it will be instinctive and sometimes it will be animal reactions because we're animals after all, they, will, they, won't, they probably won't be the most, um, the, most um, uh, the, the best ones. But if you think about situations if you try to understand them as we've done here um well you get to know you get to know the world a little bit better which is what we've done so i want to thank you excuse some of the behavior though too yeah. i mean because that's what you're getting at we still should be civil animals despite our frustration not depending whether four of you do it so uh, it, uh <laughs> anyway that's a different discussion uh, but I, I want to thank you for your time. It's it's late at night. You probably haven't had dinner yet, so I'll send you back to dinner. And Paul is going to a meeting. So again, thank you very much for your time to the three of you. Gillen, thank you, thank, thank, thank you so much for your time and no hard feelings about your your Maradona book review. I didn't either. I'm, I will I, read the book. I, I did find that mildly amusing. Uh, yeah, thank you very much for your time, Guillaume. <laughs> I'm glad, it's, I'm glad it's not my first book, because if it wasn't, you would have killed it <laughs> with your mild amusing, amusing kind of gesture. Now, I, 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 um, uh, it was an interesting twist of events, let's put it that way, and something that I cannot do anything about, zero things I can do about. So there it is for uh, you to be mildly amused. <laughs> but thank you very much for the invite. We, we definitely appreciate it. All right. Thank you. Take care. Thank you so much. Thank you.